to my team all the time about building empathy when you're working with folks. So whether that's an engineer that you tend to, you're, you're disagreeing with on a specific project, try to understand well, you know, why do they feel so strongly about pursuing a, a solution in this angle, or whether you're talking to a customer, right? Like trying to build empathy in every sort of interaction at work, I think makes you much more effective. It also actually makes life more enjoyable and fun. Welcome to Lessons in Leverage, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of success. We'll help you unlock the secrets of leverage so you can amplify your impact in the world. Here's your host, Spencer Lowe. Welcome back to another episode of Lessons in Leverage. I'm very excited today to have Terrence Bennett with me on the podcast. He's currently the CEO of Dream Factory Software, but he's got a really cool journey that I'm excited to dig into. He ran operations at Integrate.io. He was a member of Google's Offensive Security Red Team. And prior to that, he started out in the military serving our country, the U.S. Navy. So Terrence, thank you for your service first and foremost, and uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Spencer. Yeah, happy to be here. Happy to chat. Looking forward to it. So I would love to go back and start at the beginning of your journey. Did you know that you wanted to work in technology before you got into the service, or was that something you sort of discovered as you started out in the Navy? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I've always loved computers. I've always enjoyed working with them, right? I, I sort of did IT tech support in the summers. In high school, I, I built my own computers, gaming computers, kind of just hobby computers. Back, back when that was a thing, I guess I'm kind of dating myself by saying that. <laughs> but remember what in particular you played? I, I, I played some of the worst ones. I was a big World of Warcraft guy when I was a kid. Yeah. I liked first, first person shooters. So like, you know, came up playing Doom. But those kinds of things. We used to have, we call them land parties. Everyone bring their, their tower to someone's house. Yeah. I'm having flashback along with going to high school gyms to buy uh, computer parts. Yeah. That, that was, it's funny. I was joking with Fred just the other day about that land parties, how fun that was and how it doesn't even make sense to kids today. Like, what do you mean? You need a local network to play, just get online. What are you talking about? Yeah, that's hilarious. It's crazy. So, you know, I was like computers. I, I did a little bit of programming and decided that wasn't the route I wanted to go. So, ended up at the Naval Academy and the Academy is very much an education, it's kind of like a systems education and like a highly technical systems edu- education. So even though I studied economics, which, I, you know, I would argue is sort of systems thinking just at like a, a different level, you, you sort of take a full year of physics, a full year of chemistry, a full year of double E, take thermo, right? Like three years, the three, yeah, three semesters of calc, right? So it's pretty technical. So I always joke, I've got like the better half of an engineering degree. And that's, and that's where I wanted to stop. And then I got to a ship and I fell in love with engineering related work, right? Like being like an engineering officer, running a plant, working with teams that, you know, day in, day out, solve problems. And so, you know, this is a little bit off topic from your initial question of, did I want to get into tech? But for me, it's all kind of this part of the same continuum, right? And then as an intelligence officer, once again, got involved in systems work. It's all sort of about, you know, working with the team to solve problems, right? Finding them the resources and the tools and everything else they need to, to, to complete, uh, to solve a problem. And I guess it was at that point, right? And so here we're jumping from high school Terrence, 2002, 2003, you know, to getting out of the Navy 2017 and deciding, okay, what am I going to do? And when I looked around, the most interesting problems to solve were, were tech. And I was sort of naturally attracted to, to that. So that's kind of, I guess that's how I think about it, right? Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's, there's a couple really good nuggets in there I want to highlight. I mean, you talked about one element, which is this concept of systems-based thinking, which is like, again, a lot of people, they just don't know where to start. They don't know like, all right, maybe I'm not a programmer. I'm not techie. I, maybe I didn't start from the standpoint of building my own computers. So if I, but I can see that that's where the future is going. I can see that everything is getting more and more tech-enabled and tech-driven. It's like, where do I even start? Well, you came from economics and you have this way of thinking about the world that then you continue to build on, even as you were in the Navy, of thinking about how systems work together. And that's something I think a lot more people can relate to and is is this foundational skill. And then you added to that the second skill that you highlighted, which is team, working in a team setting to solve problems. That's another element of, you know, modern businesses. It's a huge asset that we look for in people we hire. Of like, can you solve a problem with a team? Because sure, maybe you're the smartest person and you get it and you can solve it, but can you help others? Can you work together collaboratively? That's a huge element too. Were there any other skills during that journey in the Navy that you feel like you maybe didn't know it at the time, but they started to become these building blocks that would prepare you for where you're at now? 
That's interesting. I've always had a knack for going back to the kind of systems thinking, almost like a having like an intuitive map of whatever it is I'm looking at, right? So whether it was a computer network, right? Or like a computer architecture, or whether it was literally like the, the low pressure air system of a, of a DDG, of a ship, right? Or the, the, the you know, the, the clean water loop, you know what I mean? On a, on a ship. I, I've always enjoyed being able to look at those kinds of systems almost in like a, like a spatial reasoning away, right? And break them down and understand them. And I think I sort of, I definitely developed those kinds of neuro, neural pathways, if you will, which interestingly, I would argue actually kind of maps well to thinking about like intelligence, right? And thinking through like, how does, how does an organization, this adversarial organization that I'm trying to understand, how do they work? How do they actually operate, right? Instead of just picking a few pieces of information and making an assumption, let's like, let's use some logic, right? And try and break down based on these pieces of information and what else, what else do I know? How does this actually fit into this like larger picture and what kind of, what can we deduce from that? Otherwise, you know, I, I think like at a high level, the Navy teaches you how to, how to lead, how to work with frankly, challenging personalities. And I, I think every organization's like that. I think the Navy, by nature of literally putting like 300 people in a steel box and sending them out to sea, which forces you to get really good at that. Because every organization is going to have some tough personalities, but when you're literally like rubbing shoulders with them every day in the hallway, in the P-ways, we call it, you're forced to work with folks in a, in a really, in a very real way. And, you know, I talk to my team all the time about building empathy when you're working with folks. So whether that's an engineer that you tend to, you're, you're disagreeing with on a specific project, try to understand what, you know, why do they feel so strongly about pursuing a, a solution in this angle, or whether you're talking to a customer, right? Like trying to build empathy in every sort of interaction at work, I think makes you much more effective. It also actually makes life more enjoyable and fun because now you're building relationships, right? And that's, you know, if we know anything about like human psychology and what makes you us happy as people, it's building relationships, right? It's forging relationships and enjoying them. And, and, you know, we do eight hours a, a, a day at work, right? Like I, I really hope everyone <laughs> makes an effort to try and enjoy those eight hours, right? <laughs> yeah, certainly. Yeah. I think that's a great point that Often we just focus on the hard skills and how that sort of starts to contribute to our success or, or as a necessary building block. But everyone I've met that I look up to, that I respect, that has accomplished things has equally spent time building those soft skills and has figured out, you know, I love that when you just highlighted this concept of, of not always trying to be understood, but to first understand, to go figure out why do they feel the way they feel? Why are they so passionate? Why are they, instead of just so much easier to just label it and be mad. It's like, oh, they're just stubborn. Oh, they're just, they're just mean. They're just whatever. Put a label on it, slap it, get rid of it, ignore it, be mad at them. Now you're unhappy. It's not going to help you work with them. It's not going to get any results. And you didn't learn anything in the process. You didn't grow at all, which is another thing that, that we talk about the psycholo- psychological side and what makes you happy. I mean, growth feels good. And so we're all wanting to growth. We're wanting to contribute to something bigger than ourselves. We're wanting to meet these, these important human needs. And so how can I do that if I constantly just write everyone off and get mad at them because they're different, because they see things differently, because they have different backgrounds, skills, et cetera. And so when you think about that empathy piece, I love this idea. I've never thought about it before that in the Navy, you're literally just stuck on a ship with these people. So you can't, can't opt out, can't, can't get around. Work. How, how does that apply now as you're leading people in a situation where they aren't stuck on a ship, where they may, might not feel that same critical necessity, I must work through this. How do you replicate that for your team and how do you teach them to, to be able to work through those, those, those conflicts? Yeah, I think a lot of it's around asking, asking a lot of questions, right? Like if you build a, an environment where people actually feel like their inputs genuinely wanted, they'll tell you a lot. Yeah. And we very quickly learn about where this friction points, right? And the term I use with my team all the time is, is that it takes all types. I don't want a marketer you know, writing code, pushing code into production. I don't want an engineer writing marketing. Yeah. Um, and I mean, actually the more extreme example of this like is sales, right? Like I don't want, I don't want engineers trying to sell. I don't want sales trying to write code. And that's <laughs> what they're both necessary for this whole thing to, to move forward. Right. So let's all, you know, if we have some conflicts, if we have some disagreements, like let's sit down and hash them out. Yeah. Everyone. The, the salesperson that understands how an engineer thinks is going to be a much better salesperson. I'm sure they're going to run into engineer-like people in, in the sales field that, that they're trying to sell to. 
engineer who really understands how salespeople think is going to be able to write better code. So that empathy and the asking the questions, I mean, it ends up translating to your core skill. It's easy to say, no, this is my core skill. So that's outside my lane. I don't have to do it. But, but it's amazing how much it, it ends up being complimentary, even when that's maybe not who you are. You're not going to go be that salesperson, but understanding them, what could that teach you that could help you create something that's even better? So I love that. I love that, that framework. Well, I wanted to ask a little bit about, you know, as you get out of the Navy and you decide, all right, tech's the best place to kind of take on these challenging problems, do what I like to do and, and solve these problems. How'd you end up at Google specifically? And, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are very interested in trying to, to land somewhere like Google, someone that's competitive and that has, you know, some brand recognition. They want to maybe bolster their resume or they want to learn a lot and and go somewhere that that has a lot of interesting problems to solve. So tell me about that journey and what skills you had to develop or that you used to be able to find your way into a competitive team there? Yeah, no, great question. So I got out 2017. I thankfully, you know, getting out of the service, there's increasingly all these great programs that as a transitioning veteran can get you in front of some of the right people, get you in front of people who can kind of help translate things for you. I actually did a, a program through Deloitte called Deloitte Core. It's just uh, essentially like three, four days. But it was really helpful for me to start to kind of shift my mindset of thinking. And and one of the speakers, he was from, he's like an, I think he was an academy grad from Starbucks. And he said, the first question I ask every candidate is, have you read so-and-so's book about Starbucks? It's like the CEO's book. It's like the book on Starbucks. And if they say no, I, I assume the best. And I ask them if they've read this other book. That's like, if you remember this one book, it's the... It's the second book about Starbucks. And if the answer is no, it's like, clearly you haven't invested in, in this interview. Uh, and, and, and the point being is you need to take interviewing seriously. And just like an intelligence officer should dig through all the resources, a, a surface warfare officer should dig through all the pubs. Like you need to do your research and understand these organizations. And guess what? People have literally written the book for you right? It's right there for you. And so as you know, that was kind of one of the, the first lessons I took was that, Hey, I'm, I'm going to look at a few organizations and I'm going to go deep and I'm going to read all you know, Google. It's literally called how Google, right? Like you haven't read the book, how Google works. Like you have no business applying to Google. I'm sorry. Like you just, like you're not, you're just not there. Right. First step. Right. And so you know, just some of the kind of, you know, some of the thinking that I, I, I used to developed. But, but ultimately, right, I, I applied to Google and I got a quick rejection. Even after having gone through like a resume workshop at the DC office, the Google office, and, and working closely with a the Googler there, you know, it's it's super competitive. I got a call back from an, what's called an administrative business partner, so such an EA recruiter. Then she said, Terrence, we, we, one of my colleagues from this other team sent me your resume. She said she saw you had a year of administrative support experience. So I'm curious if you'd be interested in interviewing for this other role. It wasn't what you know you initially applied for, but I think you could be a fit. And and so you know, background is I spent a year as an executive assistant with in the Navy. Essentially, they often take high performing officers and they bring them up to the, if you will, the front office, the flagpole, and you get a year sitting next to the commanding officer or an admiral, learning about how you know the sausage actually gets made, learning about like how things actually get done. Um, uh, kind of joking aside, like. That experience is part of the reason why you know, I decided, hey, you know, maybe the Navy is not actually for me long term because this doesn't actually look very fun. But grew experience, and that's why the recruiter reached out. And it was not of the role I wanted, but I took it and I interviewed and I got it because you know that's essentially where where I needed to start. Right, a lot of folks when you get out say thank you for your service, but as an intelligence, naval intelligence officer, no one knows what to make of that. They, they assume I'm like James Bond carrying around like a PP, a PP nine or something in my sock. Like they, like they just literally have no clue what to make of, of that experience set. And so in some cases you need to kind of start at the bottom, right? Start, it's essentially start in the middle room, right? And so I did two years at EA working with a fantastic, just phenomenal manager and, and team. Uh, we grew his, his team 300% in a matter of two years. And I started actually, I learned to, some scripting there. So I'd already done a little bit of programming, right? I taught myself Google Apps Script and started automating away a bunch of work. And that's actually, interestingly enough, that was the trigger that led to a bunch of people saying, hey, let's, I think, I think you've outgrown this role. Let's find something else for you. Like, which I thought was really kind of phenomenal. You know, Google just inherently as a culture 
has an incredible ability to sort of move around an organization, move between roles. And uh, some folks saw that and said, hey, like, let's, let's find out what's next for you. And so I put in a package to transfer from uh, essentially the EA role to program manager. And I, I just jumped over to the, to that red team. And, and that, that manager saw a very junior program manager, but, but they saw, you know, seven years of Navy experience along with, you know, a bunch of time as intelligence officer and said, Hey, that's actually a phenomenal fit for this role. And so he joked that he, he sort of got, got me for a bargain, right? Like, yeah, but well, relatively junior salary, but was able to sort of punch above my weight. So yeah, that's, I don't know if there's any, where you, any thread you want to pull there, but yeah, you know, I certainly recommend that path for everyone. It worked for me, but, but yeah, there's no, there's no sort of, there's no hack, right? There's no like secret phrase you put in your resume, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sometimes you love them. And, and I think there's so much to unpack there that's valuable. I mean, the first thing is one, you don't know ahead of time what the path is going to be. You, you can't chart. I, I'm not big on long-term plans. Like I'm not big on people who have 10, 15, 20 year plans. If this is how everything's going to go. That's not how I am. I think you have to have very strong goals and very clear vision of generally speaking where you want to go. But along the way, you got to be ready to adapt and you're not going to know exactly what's going to work. So you got to, you got to put out a lot of effort in a lot of areas, build the right skills. And all those things are shifting probabilities little by little to get you closer to this outcome you want. But the person who's like, have to go to Stanford and then to Harvard business school and then to this executive position and this like, that is, you're going to be way more upset when, if things don't go exactly your way, it's going to be a lot harder. It's a, but if you're constantly building the skills and you are doing the right things, then you'll find these paths that up front aren't intuitive, aren't, aren't forethought, aren't planned, but then come together. And so the very first part I like about what you said that people I think can all apply and take from that is when you get out of the service, you you were able to use these organizations to help you transition. Well, what that did for you that I heard was one, you kind of figure out how to get in front of the right people. Cause like relationships are a huge element of getting any job or getting any, any opportunity. So you got connected with good people that could help you to understand things like, you know, what opportunities are out there that align to your skill set, et cetera. Then you got to also translate that. You might've been in a job somewhere. These people listening to the podcast might be in a job right now as an executive assistant. And they're probably not thinking my next move is to program. But, but if you get the right skills, you acquire them over time, or they might be in a technical role not, and not thinking, oh yeah, sure, I'll take on an executive assistant or a, an administrative. Yeah. It's not an intuitive move, but because you were ready and you built the right skills, then you, it was all able to translate into a larger goal that got you where you wanted to be, maybe slightly slower, but, but all things considered into a really good spot. And so I love that. So there was first the sort of making the right relationships. The second piece then was translating the skills. And, the, and then the third was being adaptable, which is, which is this idea of they didn't have, you weren't accepted right away for the role you wanted, but you got your foot in the door, learned things along the way, kept building your skills. Some people might've got that job and said, great, I guess I'm in administration the rest of my life. But instead, start automating things away, showing that you have more capability and then boom, more doors are open. And so I just think there's so many elements there of building a career and, and really growing they can apply to anyone in any circumstance and can can get you to that next level. So I, I think that was hugely valuable. You yeah, it's it's not it's not obvious when you're doing it, right? I had multiple people tell me, Terrence, you're you're taking like two steps back here, right? Like I was literally the I was the senior watch officer at the NCIS's uh, multiple threat alert center, right? I was like it's like a senior intelligence officer on like a global watch floor, and I left that to to join Google as an EA. And a lot of people were like, I, this doesn't seem right. Like you shouldn't be doing this. And I was like, you know what? Like it, it's a great, ma- he's a great manager. And I think it's gonna, it, it's not, I'm not gonna be in this role forever. Right. But I think it's a good fit for the time being. So how did you develop the confidence in that moment to do that? Cause this is something you, there's a lot of people told you you're making the wrong decision. And this is again, a commonality I see among successful people where people around them are thinking one very linear path. You, how did you how did you see it? What what led to having that confidence to say, okay, I'm I'm gonna chart I'm gonna chart a path that's a little unconventional. How did you have that confidence? Because I think a lot of people struggle. Like if it's not the linear next step, what do I even do? So it's funny. I wouldn't view it as confidence as much as the uh, the word grits overused, but it, it's the only word that comes to mind right now. This is the background. I I'm dyslexic. There was never been an easy path. <laughs> like. Everything that looked easy for 
that everyone else was doing was actually much harder for me. When you're dyslexic and you're handed like a 300 page book to read for, for whatever class, like the one thing you can be sure of is you're not going to just pick up that book and read it. You're, you're going to think of a bunch of other ways to, to ingest that information. And it might be a combination of, of Wikipedia and audio and talking with, you know, friends and several groups, but like they, they, the easy path is never actually the easy path. And I think I just learned quickly that like, I can't do things the way everyone else does them. Mm. Like I have, to, I have to chart my own path regardless. And if you do that long enough, it just becomes the, the, the comfortable thing. Well, the uncomfortable is just getting in line. Mm. It's uncomfortable. It's like, it's following advice because it just doesn't feel right. Cause so many times that instinct, that, that, it, that traditional advice has completely and utterly failed you. Um, great. That's a great insight. And I, I think that this idea of, that you mentioned before of how you've always uh, appreciated and had talent with visual representations, it's like, I, it, it probably, I mean, I'm just speculating, but it wouldn't surprise me if that comes back to this idea of if words are, are tricky and they, you know, for so many people, words are the easiest way to communicate. So that's where they start, you know, writing, reading, that's, that's the easiest way. That's where people go. But then as you get into things like systems design and architecture, you find out that even if you're great at words and you don't have any limitation or frustration around that, pictures are still better. <laughs> and so, you know, for in our company, we always require that our clients, we start with business process diagrams. It's like, yeah, we could write out a narrative. We want you to see each step and say, yes, this is what happens. No, this is not. And it's funny how fast people, when they see it in an image, go, oh, no, that's wrong. Oh, that doesn't work. And so for you, you're just developing these strategies out of necessity, but it allows you to find strategies that are universally better. And how many times is that true in our life where we've been accepting one strategy because it's the easiest or the obvious, but then the less obvious strategy is just the better strategy. And it's so hard to know that up front unless you're willing to question and try. So I, I love that about your story that, that, you know, maybe because of that challenge growing up with dyslexia. You found these strategies, whether it was thinking visually or whether it was, you know, taking a job that some perceived as a step back and you were able to then build those skills that, that got you to where you wanted to be. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the traditional path, you know, for the highly, highly qualified sort of former military officer is you go to like a warden or you go to whatever HBS or, you know, some MBA program and you, and the, you know, you, you work your way up from there. Right. That was never even something I, I seriously considered because of, of the GMAT and just because like I, that's not the environment I thrive in, right? So it's sort of ironic, right? But I've been a lot of peers who went that route and you actually become a commodity because, because that's, because there's a ton of these guys that have done that and, and it's nothing against that path, right? Like they're, they're brilliant, you know, qualified folks, right? But you sort of become this commodification of the, like the former military officer versus like people look at my path and they're just, I think they just want to scratch and dig, or dig deeper and go like, what, what is going on here? Like, and, and that's something yeah. I do to young employees constantly. And it's so hard to convince people of because there's so much noise saying, no, do it this way. But I try to convince them that, that early on in your career, and you can decide what that means. Is that the first 10 years? Is that in your twenties? Is that now, how are you there? But early on in your career, I tell them, do not optimize for salary. And now increasingly there's people that are like, I just got to get the highest salary right now. Now there's nothing wrong with optimizing for salary. You can make a lot of money that way. You can go job hop and stay in the same role, just get the better pay. And But when you trace that all the way out, most of the people who do it end up just making really good salaries and staying in that job their whole life. So if, if that's what you're aspiring to, then great, do that. But if what you want to do is something more you know, meaningful or higher leverage, you want to start your own business, you want to have multiple income streams, you want to build something other people haven't thought of, then you have to be willing to do the things other people aren't willing to do. And usually that's prioritizing over salary. Sometimes you can have both, but prioritizing even higher the people that you're going to work with and the relationships you're building, as well as the skills you're developing. And that's both the hard skills, the technical skills, and the soft skills. Because that all adds up 10 years down the line to these incredible opportunities and people think it's an overnight success or it's an obvious problem. I'm sure people look at you and go, oh yeah, it's obvious. He's Navy officer and then Google. And of course he's a CEO now. Well, 
again, like you said, at the time, it wasn't obvious. At the time, a lot of people think it made sense. And so, but you had that conviction to prioritize the experiences, prioritize what you thought was going to help you to build and grow. And then that added up to the outcome in a much more powerful way. So I just, I think that's such a high leverage mindset that people can adopt of questioning traditional thinking, especially if the traditional outcome that goes with the traditional thinking isn't the one you're looking for. And then being willing to lean into trying things that you have your your own conviction in for your own growth and building. You just reminded me of a great conversation I had. I, I, I do a lot of like veteran mentorship calls. Like folks just reach out on LinkedIn. And I, over in the course of like a 60 minute call, essentially we like mapped out this framework to think through his, this, this young man's next step. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, you, you essentially optimize for salary, right? You can optimize for, I think I said industry. You can optimize for brand. Google's a brand that is so absurdly powerful. I didn't actually really appreciate how powerful it was when I joined. Or we can optimize for, for like the skill experience, right? When I say skill experience, it's like, if you want to get hired as a head of product somewhere, you first have to get, get some, some years of product experience under your belt, right? And it doesn't always matter where you get that, right? The, the better the brand, the, 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 perhaps the better, you know, longer outcome, the, the more sort of ideal specific industry, the better, right? But almost to a certain degree, you know, that can, that can matter less, right? And so my point was, this guy was, hey, like, let's, let's figure out, like, scale from, you know, zero to three, like, what are the priorities of these, right? And, and so for me, at the time, you know, salary was not really that important, right? I actually took a pay cut getting out of the Navy to join Google, which, <laughs> it's not sir, the military taking a pay cut. But it's true, right? I, I highly optimized for industry and brand. And not experience, right? Not at least overtly, right? Like I knew how to manage a calendar. That wasn't a, that wasn't a skill set that was going to get me very far. What I what I did ultimately get from an experience standpoint is two years in a fast growing cloud organization, getting deep insight into organizational culture and how big tech companies work, which is which is like almost like the soft side of experience versus the hard side of experience, right? Well, and you took it upon yourself in that role to start adding technical skills to to automate things away with Google TypeScript. So, so then you found ways to to create some of the skill growth on your own and add that, which is a great combination. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think there's uh, there's a lot a lot there to to work with. I I should find that we actually wrote up like a Google Doc. I should find that and like put it together as a blog or something because I think there's a it's a useful framework for a lot of people to think through. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And and I always tend to have a bias towards, like I said, skills and relationships early because I think if you want to build something, I'm, I'm biased towards entrepreneurship as an entrepreneur. And so if you want to build something, you have to have the skills to do it. You have to know the people involved. Like those are the, that's what unlocks the door to entrepreneurship long-term, but not everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. And, and certainly if you want to go work at some really reputable place, they hire for brand a lot. I mean, Google ton of doors for you. It can also open entrepreneurial doors as well. It's not to say it's exclusive, yeah. but 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 when you have that better idea of long-term where I want to be, it starts to make it clear these are the trade-offs I might want to consider. And I would argue in most cases, salary should be the lowest short-term. If you're early in your career, again, early in your career, yeah. Yeah. Just, there's not much to, to squeeze there, right? Like, you yeah, you know, start, you know, it's like, it's being long-term. If you take that to its logical conclusion, right? Like you're going to become a welding to work on the, on the, on the slopes, right? Like you, you want guys to make like a hundred thousand dollars, three months or something crazy, right? Sure. Like, I mean, that, that thinking gets you that logical conclusion. So like, l- let's have a realistic conversation on like, where do you really draw a line? Yeah. And, and is it, is it valuable for your future self to be op- over-optimizing on that? You know, I, I will say to the brand piece that, you know, I touched on this. I didn't really appreciate how how valuable that was, but I can't tell you how many times, you know, chatting with people, they say, wow, you got a job at Google out of the Navy. Like, how is that possible? I was like, I mean, I'm an EA, like let's, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not quite the same thing. And they're like, no, you're at Google. Who cares what your title is? And it's like, yeah, well, it's, that's fascinating. You're saying that. Cause like, you know, six months ago, people were like, you're willing to, you're going to take that role, even if it's at Google, right? It's just a fascinating kind of mind shift. And there's some same cognitive bias there that I cannot wrap my mind around, but it exists and it exists in a big way. And, and I'd encourage, 
things different because there's going to be people who see that and go, oh man, obviously you take the pay cut just to get your foot in the door because it's Google and because you can open up new doors later. You know, and there's going to be people like, this is the dumbest idea you've ever had. It's going to hurt your salary. It's going to hurt. You're not going to be getting the experience you want. It's you're optimizing yeah. for all the wrong things. And so, you yeah. know, it's incredible though, like what a title means to some people. And I will say like, I probably had a hundred plus conversations with folks getting out. A lot of them were former junior officers with a year of EA experience. And I can tell you not a single one of them took it, followed my path, right? So I, I don't know what to make of that, except that. You know, there are, yeah, I, I said earlier, there's no like secret phrase to put on your, on your resume to get an interview, but I will say like those kinds of, these kinds of EA roles are very much available, right? For the person who's willing to take them and, and kind of start at quote unquote in the mailroom, right? And work their way up. And I actually didn't get, come up with that idea entirely myself, right? It was a, a colleague, a friend of mine who had done the same thing on Facebook and she kind of opened my eyes to it so when i did get that call from the recruiter i was i was already kind of mentally prepared for it so you know anyway I didn't, we're, we're spending a lot of time talking about like that exit from college or that exit from something like the military and like those first few steps and i think there's a lot of value in it because i think it's incredibly daunting almost paralyzing for people so hopefully some of that's useful yeah certainly is certainly is so then you know, obviously you go from Google into some other tech jobs. You know, you had the experience where you started to get more technical skills working on the red team. From there, moving on to be a director of operations for Team Password and then on to Dream Factory to your current role where now you are the chief executive officer. And so when you think about, you know, post Google, then what were some of those skills that you started to add or what were some of the high leverage ideas, mindsets, things that started to layer on that got you to where you are now, because that's a pretty short time frame. We're talking, you know, we just covered a big time frame uh, as far as the percentage of your career so far. But when we think about the more recent developments and, and how things are starting to go for you, what through those roles were some of the key decisions or learnings that you feel made the biggest impact for you? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, to your point about like essentially like building relationships, right? When I was, when I got out, come out and I came out to Silicon Valley. I joined a reserve unit with the defense innovation unit. And it was through there, I met a ton of folks kind of in this defense tech kind of ecosystem. And it was one of those gentlemen who I actually tried to help get a job at Google. He ended up getting a job in VC. So when I was looking for my next step, I went to him and said, Hey, like, you will be well. Like, what do you, you know, these kind of, what I'm looking for, what do you think? And, and he was the one who, who pointed me in the direction of, of this firm. So I worked for a, a private equity firm. Essentially, buys companies that are that for a reason maybe haven't raised that next round, mm. or, or 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 there needs to be sort of a transition in, in ownership for whatever reason. And so, so we're buying you know products with really good bones, good tech, typically like a good customer base, but they're never going to be that unicorn. And in in the VC world, like you know, if you at a certain point, if you can't, if if you don't have potential to hit those like crazy, you know, hundred x numbers, right? Like you're not going to raise the next round. And so really, really, really cool opportunity because you've got these great little companies that are just looking for people to roll up their sleeves and get, get shit done, right? So I, I jumped into Team Password, obviously background in cybersecurity, small team of like less than five employees. And I just had a, I had a blast kind of, you know, building that team, building that the morale and camaraderie, and then and just looking for those kind of small optimization opportunities, you know, little things on the website, a lot around messaging, right? And... A lot of that time was really just cutting my teeth, kind of figuring things out, getting my feet on the ground. And then, and then, you know, there was a project within the fund to bring some companies together, which was, which was called Integrates.io. Dream Factory was, was sort of ta like tangential to that, right? They're kind of like sister companies, right? And for a period of time, we were sort of running them as one, and then we sort of broke them out again, right? So things are very fluid in this kind of environment, right? So LinkedIn doesn't always, you know, LinkedIn is optimized for like pretty clean cut, like start end dates, right? But like us in that way. And, you know, to name one lesson is really hard because I've just learned so much. I think a lot of what I've really cherished is, is spending a lot of time thinking about the market and thinking about the nuance around messaging, you know, in the space of ETL, ELT, you know, data movement, right? Whether they're talking about APIs, whether they're talking about like more traditional data pipelines, 
there's like a million different ways to solve any problem, right? I mean, you work in Salesforce, the Salesforce integration space, right? Like you can probably, if you move, if you so put a gun to your head, you could probably list like a hundred different ways to move data between two different, yeah, a source and destination. And so everyone's like playing this game of trying to name name their thing and make their thing different and make their thing sound better. And well, in reality, there's like really, really specific niche cases that are ideal for all these different things. It's like programming languages, right? Like, why are people still creating programming? Because there's there's always these like off cases where it actually is worth somebody investing the time of creating a new programming language to to do this specific set of tasks like better, right? Yep. And, um, and the same thing goes for products, right? Like, product will just abjectly fail if it really doesn't have any any true differentiation. And so I just had a blast with that. And you know, Dream Factory is is actually a company that was developed as a Salesforce integration tool. Yeah. The idea being that you could just connect to any backend database, generate a live API, and you know, Salesforce obviously was first to market with the with the REST API. What was that like? Yeah, two thousand ninety nine. They've always been really, really great at just being able to ingest anything. The REST API. That was sort of the idea, right? Is like create an API on anything. It's a REST API, so you can send it through any sort of any firewall without opening ports, right? And then just it's Salesforce. And we've seen massive adoption against uh, tons of other use cases, and we didn't really have a good way of describing this thing. And so what I've had, what I've been doing, and I'm just having so much fun doing it, is is actually creating a new category and and creating all this new messaging and testing it and, and getting in front of customers. And constantly just kind of asking these questions, shaking people down and saying like, you know, does that sound right? Does that actually sound like what we're doing? Like, like how would you describe it? Right. If you were to uh, break that process down, right. You just come into one of these new companies, in this case, Dream Factory, and you go, all right, we've got to, we've got to really take a hard look at our messaging, the market, how our solution is positioned. What are the steps? What should people, maybe someone's in marketing, maybe they work at, maybe they're a leader at a company or they have their own business and they're trying to figure out. So when you think about that in terms of a, a system, what does that system look like to to go from messy, bad messaging, you know, is spending what specific steps are you taking to get to clear position in the market, strong messaging, resonating with clients? You mentioned some things, but I want to get into what are those steps exactly that that you have found to be effective? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, the you know, the first piece of Xenon is typically cleaning up sort of the operations and marketing and sales, right? So we have what we call the playbook, which is like the nitty gritty down and dirty of like, how do you make sure you know where all your money is? You know, and so we've got sort of set systems, right? So all your invoicing is going to go through Stripe and all your, you know, finances are going to be through zero and you're going to get onto like one of these CRMs, right? For tracking of deal flow. And you're going to use these, this set of sort of marketing automation tools to make sure you're you're, you're actually, you've built this sort of like repeatable marketing process and pipeline that allows for like relatively small, you know, amount of work on a weekly basis to kind of keep that flywheel going. Right. So we're really big into SEO, which is its own fascinating topic right now, which we, <laughs> we don't have to get into, but the me- marketing, the messaging piece is, is really, really challenging. And I'd say the first thing you do is you got to uncover and dig through all the data you have and figure out what you what you know. And so for instance, like one of the first things I did with Team Password is I we went through and, and trying to figure out tried to figure out like, you know, who are our customers and what are our industries, right? And it's that's that seems really straightforward, but it's not, right? Like you think you could just like run that through one of these like, you know, data this data set tools, right? And just kind of plop it all out. But it's like it's actually it's much more nuanced, right? Then often what you're talking about is like you're being used within like a part of a company and really often the customers are the only one that can give you that data. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we spent like four thousand dollars on T-shirts and hats and did like a big giveaway, and had folks complete a survey. And that was one of the best sets of data we ever got. And what became really clear for us there was actually that agencies were like our power users, right? Uh, Which is not what we expected, right? We expected actually that that like tech companies were using us, right? But we saw a lot of agencies, and the agencies seemed like the ones that were often growing and they often often were the most engaged. And, and I've stepped away from that company, right? But a, a lot of the early messaging I worked with them on and, and the ultimate sort of I think, strategic direction that there's a huge opportunity for is around becoming not a password manager, but actually like a password sharing tool. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I think kind of bleeds into the next step is 
is just being really, really curious when you talk to customers and asking about like, wh- you know, what are you really doing? Like, how are you really using this? Right. As an entrepreneur, as like a, as a, you know, a, a builder or founder, you're sort of building out what you think is useful. And, and as we sort of know with so many different examples, like what you think folks are going to want isn't often what they want. It's, it's, it's often sort of quite the contrary. Right. And so that's where like, you know, you talk about like agile methodology and building MVPs and everything else. Right. But the fact is like you're getting this product out into the world and then like the way folks actually use it is often a mystery unless you're really getting in front of them and talking with them. So, so gather that yeah. you mentioned doing like a big giveaway. Is this something where you have marketing folks reaching out? Is this account managers that already know the companies that are reaching out? Do you personally do it? Cause you want to hear it direct from the customer. And then, you know, I'm sure that even though they're a customer, maybe even a happy customer, sometimes it's, it's kind of like sales. Like, do they really want to take the time to talk to you about it? So what strategies have you seen be effective for getting that information? I'm sure if you just send a blank survey out, like maybe one person will respond. So, so what would, what have you seen actually work? So we use intercom across all the companies. Okay. At Team Password, we use intercom very aggressively. So it's not just like the chat on the website. We actually use it for all of our content, mm. like how content we use it for communication, email communications. And so you've opened got all of our customers in there and we've got all their emails. And so you can just put together together a simple email with, you know, with, I put use my name saying like, Hey, we want to say thank you to all of our customers. I think we did it around like end of year. And so we've got this short survey and a giveaway, right? And so if you, you know, we ask that you spend like two minutes and answer these like five questions and get a, get like a hat or t-shirt. And you know, it's funny, like you wouldn't think people would do much for a hat or t-shirt, but they will. Like that is by far, I think the best giveaway, especially if it's a cool t-shirt. And, and we made a point to really to work with some interesting designers and find some you know cool designs and and yeah, that worked really well, but you, you have to sort of have like a giveaway, right? There's got to be something more to it. And the giveaway's got to be significantly more for what you're asking. Also though, like, you know, no one wants to be reached out to out of the blue with an ask, right? Like it's important to have constant communication and, and engagement with customers, right? And that just means like the, the occasional email from me saying, Hey, this is what we're doing. This is what we're working on the occasional, you know, the monthly newsletter, cool stuff like end of year note you know, with pictures of the team talking about like, you know, what our plans were for, for, for the break and that kind of thing. Like, you know, building a real relationship, even if everyone doesn't open those every email, right. You're going to slowly kind of build that, that, that relationship over time. But like, you know, as a lot of companies are finding out, especially in this environment, right. Giving away, you know, earbuds often won't get people on a sales call. Right. So like this doesn't, this isn't like a a model that works perfectly for everything, right? But a relatively small survey with an audience you've already been nurturing and working with, that does work. Well, so you did our ads and you did in the survey, you say small survey, is this two questions? Is it 15 questions? Were there any questions that you found to be most insightful or important to ask? I think it was like seven. And we really tried to, we worked hard to make them really, really clear to answer. It was like a type form survey. And it was simple stuff like, you know, of these, of these organizations, like industries, like, you know, which do you most closely align with, right? Size your company. I think we actually asked for sort of number of, number of users in team password versus like number of potential users or number of, of like, or the individuals in the company, that kind of thing. Right. Mm. But yeah, you, you don't make it, you know, more than five, six questions because you're going to have a massive job off towards the end and, and your data is not going to be clean. Any of them though? And- specific narrowed in were any of them more open free form of like tell us your favorite part of the thing or you know what yeah i I think we did have that i think we had like what's what do you love most about team password what do you what do you hate most or something like that you know cool i mean the real questions we wanted answered were around expansion opportunities so like number of users currently versus number of potential users and then and then the industry piece and i was actually we you'll often be surprised like what comes back with these and like what you'll learn it's often not what you think you'll learn, but you know, for me, that was huge. And then, and then, you know, as much as you can get in front of customers. And so that often means like talking to your support team and telling them like, anytime you've got a customer, you're jumping on a call with a customer from like this industry or from these companies, invite me. I want I want to be on that call. And what you do is you drop on, you say, Hey, I'm the CEO. I, I want to take the opportunity just to say hi. And thanks for jumping on to, to work through this with our team. And, and, you know, if you can sort of casually like try and get 
get some answers. Hey, you know, we've been seeing a lot of this, this, and this. Does that make sense to you? Is that, is that a feature that you, you'd like to you'd like to see, or do you think there'd be value in that? Like, things are, there's a very casual way you can tease out some really valuable information. Mm-hmm. They're talking to the CEO, right? Like, if they like this product, they plan on using it. They're going to find they're going to be excited to talk to you and 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 give them your mind, give give you their mind, right? And and talk about what they want to see and what they don't. But yeah, I think a lot of it is around curiosity, right? Like this idea that Team Password is not actually a password manager, but is a password sharing platform is like kind of antithetical, but it's at the heart of like the best use cases we had. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I stepped away before I, I think I really kind of all got to own that problem. But you know, with, with dream, dream factory, it's a similar conversation where like folks aren't using us for traditional API management, but that's the category that existed. Right. They're using us for API generation, which is like this, this other thing, right. Around rapidly building open standard, secure integrations into data sources right and so how do you sort of capture that in some relatively short kind of h1s and h2s well it requires a lot of testing requires a lot of talking to a lot of customers a lot of testing and and then as much as you can just getting in front of that right so it's a lot of fun if you, if you love this stuff if you love tech i i do so that so well awesome well a couple more questions we'll wrap up here so i want to transition a little bit you know when we think about leverage think about anywhere that we put small effort in get massive output back right and it doesn't even have to be small effort, just that the, the multiplication of the effort is is where the, the magic is. We've actually talked about a ton of high leverage skills for developing your career. So far, we've talked about even there, I think it's a really high leverage way to multiply how how fast and how well you can iterate on your messaging, your product to get those insights. It's super valuable. So thanks for sharing that. Are there any other areas where you've seen in your business or you know in your career where you're like, this is just way easier for me or for our company. And other people just don't realize that this could be a way that could be getting much more value out of this activity. Is there anything that comes to mind? Oh, wow. Why? I guess I'd say getting in front of customers. I'm not sure I said that much here. And I think there's just, there's just so much value and it's not, you know, folks will say, well, it's really hard. Like, I'll, I, you know, we can email our whole customer base and folks, no one's going to even open the email. Well, you got to find them when they're ready to talk to you, right? And that's often support. So, you know, this is where you need to have like a, a relatively lean, efficient process of communicating across organizations, right? Like your support team has to be comfortable bringing the CEO into a support call when they might be otherwise embarrassed because like, here's this problem that they can solve and it required a customer to get on a call, right? Mm-hmm. Like these aren't necessarily like this sounds easy, but it's actually not. Mm-hmm. But if you get if you can get in front of the right people, ask the right questions, it's going to just open up a whole bunch of really interesting conversations for you and some insight. and And that's where like it's important to, to think about like you know which customer is this the actual like in ICP or is this like a fringe kind of use case, right? Mm-hmm. Well, but the, the thing is like you actually don't know until you get in front of customers and you figure out like what you think might be your ICP may not. For those who say. So, don't know what we mean. I see saying initial customer, I'm sorry, ideal customer profile, right? Exactly. If you were to build this sort of ideal customer in your mind, what would they look like? And I, I mean, ideally you have one or two of those already, right? And you can kind of lean heavily on thinking about everything from their point of view, building with their, with them in mind, right? Yeah. That's awesome. So as you look at AI and kind of well, a lot of the the trends and everything that's coming with AI, is there anything you're either worried about that you see disrupting your industry or your space or excited about that you see being a massive opportunity for yourself and others with, with how AI is going to change and, and in and of itself, open up some really big leverage opportunities? I, I think overall, I'm very, very excited, right? There's definitely, there's change happening. I think anyone who's been around long enough will tell you that you, trying to predict where the change will be is a fool's errand, right? Like you just never know. The, the best you can do is like follow the, the daily newsletters and just keep up with what's going on and, and listen to the folks in the industry who seem to have their ear to the ground and know what's going on. I'm not, you know, there's sort of the, the Luddites out there who are like it, fearful of technology. I'm a bit of probably a tech optimist in the sense that I, you know, AI is this sort of like high speed train that's coming at us one way or another. It, it, it feels kind of silly to be like to try and stop the train. It's just unrealistic too. Uh-huh. There's going to be massive disruption, right? To labor markets, to all sorts of different things. And it's on 
each of us to sort of be on top of it, right? It's no different than literally the, the Luddites, right? Who who were breaking looms because they, they thought they sort of, even because they were going to take their jobs, right? Like to a certain degree, we're all, we're all this sort of like antiquated analog system. <laughs> yeah. And AI is going to come for a lot of parts of the market and a lot of the ways that we have traditionally added value economically. But at the end of the day, like we can do so much more than an AI can, right? And it's about adopt, adapting and being on top of these changes in a way that allows you to define the sort of the opportunities, right? And so for me, that means like I'm not a developer traditionally, but wow, like put put me in front of a copilot chat GPT and I I can turn out some some good looking code, right? I'm dyslexic, right? Like don't give me a 20 page document and ask me to summarize it. But guess what? Chat GPT is really good at, right? I'm dyslexic. I'm horrible at spelling. <laughs> I used to pre pre grammarly. I'd have to proof an email, th- you know, reread the email three times. I'd have to to save it and come back a few hours later. I'd have to print it out and read it aloud to myself, right? To make sure, like an important email, to make sure I didn't have typos. How incredible is it to be able to like, to write down like a, a poorly worded, grammatically incorrect, you know, s- series of sentences and ask ChatGPT to reformat it for me in my own voice, right? Like for me. It's like the applications are endless. It's this like it's this this playground for me that is just beyond exciting. But I'm not normal, <laughs> so you know the advice for that I think for anyone is is like this is coming. Anyways, I can take your job, but somebody doing AI will eventually, and so like we are all responsible for our own future and success, and and you got to stand up. It's awesome. Well, Terrence, it's been a, a great conversation. If people want to find you, connect with you, maybe they're interested in what you're doing with Dream Factory and you know helping people really quickly build secure internal APIs, or maybe they're uh, just interested in your journey. Is LinkedIn the best place to go, or what would you tell people? Yeah, LinkedIn's best. You can reach out to, reach out to Dream Factory as well. I'm not on Twitter or X or whatever, but uh, yeah, LinkedIn's a great place. I I try and sort of make myself available to folks who reach out. You want to chat. So if you've got like a burning question, reach out, especially more veteran, right? Like try and, I try and chat with veterans, give them, give them some advice whenever possible. That's awesome. Terrence. Well, thank you so much for being on today and keep in touch. Thanks, Spencer. Thanks everyone. Hey, before you go, I have a small request. Our mission is to empower as many people as possible to maximize their potential through the power of leverage. Could you help us in this mission by leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube? And if you know just one person who would benefit from today's episode, would you please share it with them? Your support means the world to us, and we are thrilled to have you in the community. Thank you for being a part of our journey and helping us grow. You can find show notes for today's show and past shows at LessonsInLeverage.com, which also has links to connect with me personally and connect with our various podcast channels across your favorite social networks. A big thanks to Solve.Cloud, who sponsored this episode. They're a group of expert consultants that help SaaS and financial services companies to implement, optimize, and manage Salesforce.com. They can help you with custom integration solutions and are helping customers to implement some of the most important generative AI technologies. You can find them at Solved.Cloud. That's S-O-L-V-D dot cloud is the URL. Thanks again, and we'll talk soon.